Good evening. Please open your Bibles to the Song of Solomon, chapter 6. Chapter 6 of Song of Solomon. We are continuing our journey through this book of poetry, lyrical poetry, the poetry of all poetry, the song of all songs. This poetry, as we have seen, is a series of songs describing two lovers. We have a bride and her now husband, a woman and her shepherd king. And Solomon, as I've tried to show, is writing this collection of poetry not as a historical account of his own life. Instead, he's writing about a somewhat idealized view of marriage, a redeemed view of marriage. And in this marriage, the king is pictured in his splendor, and he is singularly devoted to his beloved bride, something that the historical Solomon did not live up to. And this king and his marriage is described in terms that are biblically significant. The marriage union that they share is described in in garden language, reminiscent of the first marriage in the Garden of Eden. But it's also pictured in terms of God's people being united to their king in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land overflowing with fruitfulness and bounty and peace and rest. This promised land imagery permeates the book, and it reminds us that Solomon is using a picture of earthly marriage to remind Israel of their covenant marriage with Yahweh. However, most recently, we've seen in chapter 5 a different scene, a scene that's a little jarring at first. We saw in 5-2 that the woman is asleep, and her husband comes and knocks on the door. He's, He's desirous at night for communion, intimacy with his wife, and the wife rejects his advances. He doesn't huff and puff and stomp away. He graciously accepts that her preferences are more important than his own. And he leaves her a gift, a gift of myrrh on the door. Later, she changes her mind and she gets up and she searches for the king. She opens the door and he's nowhere to be found. So she goes throughout the whole city searching for him, yet unable to find him. She encounters the night watchmen of the city who leave her bruised and beaten. And then she's asked a question by those around her. The question is this, what is your king? Why is he so special? What makes him better than all the rest? And she answers with verses 10 through 16 of chapter 5, which are a glorious description of the king as if he were a statue, similar to Daniel 2 language. She describes her king that's used in language that's used elsewhere to describe the temple, the, the place of God's special presence. She uses language reminiscent of the divine, of divinity, to talk about her king. And the whole scene is a picture of God's relationship with Yahweh in the Old Covenant. The Lord desires for His bride, Israel, to be faithful and commune with Him alone and have no other gods. But Israel wouldn't do it. She rejects the call of her king, and so God sends, not night watchmen, but prophets, 
and eventually foreign nations to come in like the night watchman to discipline the unfaithful bride so that she would again seek after her king. It's only after these invading nations come and Israel suffers exile that she again longs for the true Lord. Now our text tonight begins with a question again, a different question. The bride has not yet found her king, but the people around her pose another question. Where is your beloved? If he's so great, where is he? So for us to get an answer, let's look at our text. Chapter 6 of Song of Solomon. I'll read it in its entirety. This is the word of our great bridegroom. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. You are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing, all of them bearing twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. There are sixty queens and eighty concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom, and before I was aware... My desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that, he may, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, too often... We find ourselves like the bride in this book who can't be inconvenienced, can't be bothered to get out of bed, too consumed with our comfort, with our desires, with our distractions to commune with you. Father, we confess that we know that ought not be. We wish it were not. Lord, we pray that as we hear more of the faithful bridegroom in this text, as we see more of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that you would peel away the cold, hard layers of our hearts and make us have a heart that beats vibrantly, that longs for communion with our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
As we've made our way through this book, I've tried to show us that this text can be read at different levels. We might say there are different horizons on which we may understand the poetry of this book. Like all good poetry, the poetry here has layers of meaning. There's a surface level reading where we can read the poetry, we can try and discern what the surface level principles that might be there to immediately apply to our earthly marriage. Like there are two lovers and they are desirous of each other. They're zealous and jealous for the communion that they have. So too should husbands and wife act the same way. It's kind of a surface level reading. But another level is the historical level where we remember that this book was written during a particular time by a particular person, written to a particular people, and that's under the Old Covenant a covenant that the Lord made with the nation of Israel. And so here we see the marriage between the king and his bride parallels. It's a picture of the nation of Israel being married to Yahweh. And in many ways, the narrative mirrors God's relationship in the history of Israel. But at a third level, we might say a, a, a whole Bible level, a canonical Level, we read this book remembering its placement within the whole scope of redemptive history. We read it in light of the New Testament, where we learn that marriage is and has always been a picture of Christ and his bride, the true people of God. The true and faithful Solomon is married to a bride that's not yet perfect, but one day will be. All of those who are effectually called and united to Him by faith. And so with these levels, we can begin to understand this book more fully. And so let's go back to our text and we start with the question, Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek Him with you? And I want us to note Hear the, the importance of speech in this book. The importance of speech. The bride is coming off of a wonderful section wherein she's describing her king in glorious language. She's praising him and his appearance. He's distinguished among 10,000, she says. In modern language, he's one in a million. He's radiant. He's Ruddy, the text says. He's, he's strong, he's pure, he's unshakable. He has foundations like the temple that cannot be moved. And his words, his lips, speak words that are most sweet. She says he is altogether desirable. There's nothing lacking. Now, I won't preach the whole chapter again, but the point is clear. When speaking to others about her husband, she's positive, complimentary, Laudatory, to use an older word. She praises him when asked about him. And so a very simple application for us is to think about the speech that we use when we speak about our spouse. How do I speak about my husband? How do I speak about my wife to others? It's so easy for us to be frustrated within our marriage or frustrated about something our spouse has done or, or really any kind of relationship. It doesn't have to be merely a marriage. It can be a friendship. And we can be tempted to speak in ungodly ways about them when they're not around. 
Whenever you talk to your friends, you're, you're posed with the same opportunity to answer your question. What is your beloved? What is your friend? What is your spouse? Well, how do you answer? Within any of our relationships, our speech can be a thing that either sweetens the entire enterprise or erodes it, can undermine it. Speech can heal or it can hurt. It can develop the relationship or it can tear it asunder. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs says. And so often we can let a bitter or discouraging tongue undermine our relationship. Many marriages languish on the vine because one or both of the parties have used their tongues in a hurtful way rather than a healing way. And for a lack of love and a lack of encouragement, many marriages suffer. They're they're lukewarm, tepid. They're not satisfying. And so we can begin to complain to others. We can gossip to our friends. We can grumble against the Lord for giving us the spouse that He's given to us. Scripture makes clear that such behavior is not merely unbecoming of a child of God. It's sinful. Sinful. Rather, we should be the kind of spouse that's pictured in Proverbs 31. Remember the woman there who does her husband good and not harm all of the days of her life? The text says she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. But it's not merely the woman there who uses her tongue in a godly way. The husbands, remember what the husband says, as her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. He praises her with his tongue, and he does so publicly. Mutual kindness within that relationship, mutual respect, mutual praise and encouragement, that's what ought to characterize our speech in our marriages. And so does that mark your speech? Are you an encourager or do you disparage? Do you have words that heal, that that brighten the eyes of your beloved, to use biblical language? Or do you suck the life out of them? It makes me very thankful that Christ does not speak words of death to His bride. Christ and His words are a healing balm to His bride. He speaks words of life. Even now, He is speaking to you through the proclamation of His Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Words of life. Even though His bride was unfaithful, she was so unkind to Him, mocking Him, jeering at Him, disparaging Him, spurning His desire for communion. Yet Christ pursued He's like Hosea going after Gomer again and again. Christ sought out his bride and came down from heaven and and bore the stripes that she had earned. He died in her place, was buried, and defeated the sentence of death that had hung over her. And he washed her like a faithful husband. 
Even now, he is speaking to his bride. He's inviting her to come back. If you have been cold this week and distant from him, he's inviting you back. He doesn't hold a grudge for for being distant. He's not reluctant to bring you back into communion with him. And we'll see that again later in this passage. Come back to Jesus. Embrace Him, and and don't let your past rejection of Him keep you from returning. Trust in this Jesus. But before we leave this point, I think there's another application here. The, The people around the woman, they're not in the marriage, right? They don't have the bridegroom as their bridegroom. They're asking... Those outside the relationship are asking, what makes him so special? What is your king like? And the bride speaks sweetly of her king. There's an image here of those outside of the relationship, those in the world, asking about our Savior. How do we speak? Do we use our tongue to speak sweetly of our king, to warmly invite them to experience such a relationship. See, sometimes the nature of our speech can be an impediment in these kinds of conversations. We can perhaps spend all our time disparaging the church. We've been on the inside. We know all the, all the warts and everything. Let me complain to you about it. Let me grumble. It's not going to make anybody want to be a part of Christ's bride. Or maybe our speech isn't sweet because we're just using... God's word like a hammer to smash. Preaching the law in such a way that neglects and actually undermines the sweetness of the gospel. We harshly condemn sinners rather than inviting them to meet the king. It doesn't matter if we're, we're preaching or if we're talking to our children at home who have fallen into sin again. Do we use the rod of the law to try and get them to change their behavior as if their biggest problem was the toys on the floor they didn't pick up. The main problem is not that our children don't behave the way we want them to. The main problem is their hearts are far from God. And the law never saved a soul. It's the gospel The sweetness of the gospel that changes the human heart. And so when we talk to sinners, whether it's our children or people out in the workplace, out in the world, it's the sweetness of the gospel, the sweetness of our speech about our Savior. That's the only thing that can bring them to their knees for repentance. When we invite people, we should use sweetness of speech. Now let's keep going. Verse 2. Well, verse 1 was the question, where is your beloved? Where is he gone? We get the answer in verse 2. He's gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, to gather the lilies. Again, this is shepherding type language. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. He grazes his flock, that is. He's not out there eating the grass. Now, there's some debate here about what exactly is happening in the text. Some people think that when the bride says that her beloved has gone down to his garden, that means that she has found the king 
And the king has gone down to his garden, his imagery of them sharing communion again. While it is true that the image of going down to the garden is used elsewhere in this book to describe marital intimacy, like in the end of chapter 4, beginning of verse 5, or chapter 5, I'm not convinced that's the meaning here. There's nothing here in this specific section to indicate that the bride has already found the king. She was searching for him in chapter 5. She's questioned. She answers the question. She gets another question. There's no hint of, oh, and there he is. Nothing in this scene that tells us she's found him. I think this scene is actually a picture of the king having gone down to his garden. He's accepted her rejection in chapter 5, and she knows him well enough to know where he's going to go next. He delights to be in his garden. That's where this king dwells. That's where he always goes. That's why she goes down to the garden later in verse 11 of this chapter, which for some reason is rendered orchard in the ESV. It's the same word for garden, chapter, verse 2 and verse 11. So the bride... I think here in verses 2 and 3 is reflecting upon her own answer to the question, reflecting upon the character and the behavior of her king, and reversing her refusal of him in chapter 5, verse 3. That's what gets her to change her tune in verse 3. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. It's as if she's answering the question that's been posed to her, where is your king? And as she's answering it, memories are coming back up. Words that he's said to her in the past. Things that he's done. It's as if reflecting upon her king softens and warms her heart towards him. She reflects upon her status. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. Her, her relationship upon her king, her bridegroom, and it compels her eventually to move, to action, to go. That's often how our marriages can work too. Our relationships. We have some sort of rift, big big or small, some sort of coldness, some kind of relational distance, either in the marriage or a friendship. And it's often helpful to reflect upon the relationship, the status, the big picture, zoom out a little bit. We can see that our hearts begin to soften some. We can think about the good things that your spouse does. Rather than fixating on that one thing they just did, you can zoom out a little bit. Think about the ways they serve you and your family, the things they they do well, the way that they speak and act, the way that they try and help. Certainly they're not perfect, I'm not saying that at all, but reflecting upon the ways that they do try can soften our hearts. So often we can let our hearts just simmer with ingratitude. We're fixating on the negative, the things that that they fail in, the things that they always mess up, the way they never listen to to me when I'm talking to them. It's no wonder we find it impossible to warm up to them again. And so consider yourself. Where does your heart go when you feel coldness in the relationship? coldness in 
the marriage? Do you linger on their failings, letting that stir within you bitterness? That unchecked goes to disdain, contempt, frustration. It's difficult to ever get to reconciliation if you linger on all of those negative things. Now, I'm not, of course, I'm not minimizing anyone's sin against you. That needs to be handled. But I'm mainly talking about where our, our minds and our hearts tend to gravitate. Do we tend to withdraw and retaliate? We stew on the wrong and neglecting to be thankful for what the other person has done. Because here the woman reminds herself of her relationship, of her as the bride of the king, that they belong together. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. And that moves her to reflect. I think that's what the next verses, 4 through 10, are. An extended reflection on things that he has said and done in the past towards her. Ways that he has praising, praised her. I'll walk through these words from the king fairly quickly since it's very similar to what's been covered in chapter 4. A lot of the language is repeated. But verse 4, You are as beautiful as Tirzah, my love, as lovely as Jerusalem. Tirzah, the literal word means beautiful. It's a city. It's the former capital of the north, northern Israel. So it's as if he's saying from Tirzah to Jerusalem, from top to bottom, you are beautiful. He's using language here again of the land, of blessing, of protection, of safety, of peace. Which is why it goes into language that's militaristic, like, a, like an army with its banners. That's an interesting metaphor to bring into a love poetry section, big scary army. He's saying, you're awesome. In the older sense of the word, not like a surfer says awesome. Right? You evoke awe within me. It leads him, verse 5, that he's struck with awe so much that he says, turn your eyes away from me, they overwhelm me. He's saying, you're so beautiful, I can't stand it. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. There's promised land language again. Similar language to the praise he gives in chapter 4, praising her beauty before the wedding day, fruitfulness, blessing. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes. They come up from washing. They're pure. They're beautiful. They're white. They're bountiful. They have, each of them are bearing twins. Not one has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. And then we get to a puzzling passage. It says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Where are you going with this one? Some think that this is Solomon writing his autobiography. And he's simply saying, out of all the women I have in my harem, I like you the best. Which I don't think would be comforting to most women. Now, if you read it closely, there's nothing here that says that these queens or concubines belong to this king. I don't think he's describing the harem of earthly Solomon at all. 
Again, as I've tried to prove along the way, Solomon's not writing his autobiography in this poem. He's writing about a a redeemed marriage. And I believe that what the king is saying is that his beloved bride, his queen, is distinguished among all the other queens who have married kings. All the other concubines that men may have. He's saying, you are like no other queen in this world. Nobody compares to you. And if that reading is correct, if what I'm saying is true, this passage actually stands as a rebuke of Solomon's behavior in 1 Kings 11, where he had his heart pulled away from the Lord by wives, hundreds of wives and concubines. Monogamy, not polygamy, is the only fertile ground for lasting faithfulness. To borrow Jesus' words from the beginning, it was not so was one man and one woman united in love all of their days. Verse 9, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to, who, to her who bore her. The young women saw her and call her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, they praised her. Sounds like the Proverbs 31 woman again. Others see her and praise her for her beauty like the virtuous woman. Verse 10, Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? And so the bride's beauty, her awesomeness, they're praised in terms of the glory that's possessed by the celestial bodies. Beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun. And then the section closes again with army banners. It's the same bookend to the whole passage of militaristic language. This again confirms the reading of the bride's beauty being compared to God's people having the blessed rest and security of being within the promised land under God's blessing. The king in this book is compared to Yahweh, to Yahweh's Messiah. And so the bride is reflecting upon how the king in the past had praised her, had spoken to her. And that moves us to the final section of this chapter where she's compelled to act. Verse 11, she says, I went down to the garden or to orchard, depending on your translation. I went down to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. So she's reflected upon the king's love She's compelled by what he has said and done in the past to go out and find him. She goes to the garden to see if the the flowers are blooming. No, she's going to see if winter is over, if spring has come. Is is the cold season past? It's as if she's saying, is is our relationship still on the rocks? Have the cold feelings thawed enough for fruitfulness and intimacy to be experienced again. She's not sure what kind of reception she's going to receive. That's why she's got to go down and check the signs. Is it flowering yet or is it still cold and icy? Have you ever experienced that in your marriage? You've made a mistake and you know it, you've blown it. You're not quite sure how things are. Are we still mad? Are we good? Is it still still winter or is it spring yet? 
Can I get a sign? Guys, this is the Hebrew poetry version of wondering if you're still in the doghouse. That's, that's what's going on here. Perhaps you felt that way with your walk with the Lord. Where you blew it, and you know it, you've sinned. You've made yourself dirty again. Gone after the stuff of this world. And you're not confident. You don't feel sure that the Lord will have you back in. And you feel like it's winter time. And be sure Satan wants you to believe it's winter time and there's no spring. You're hesitant to to draw near again. You feel like you, you know you deserve the cold shoulder. But look how the king responds in verse 12. It says, Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. Now, the, the Hebrew here is very difficult. It's hard to translate precisely, which you'll note if you compare different translations of this verse. But the main point is clear enough. It is as if she, as soon as she resolves to go down to the garden, as soon as she steps foot down that path to seek out her beloved, and before she even gets there, it's like the king picks her up in a chariot, and sweeps her off her feet. You see, she was afraid of having a cold reception. You know, just like the reception she gave him in chapter 5. I'm not interested. Can't be bothered. It's not worth my time. And she expects the king to do that, to keep her at arm's distant for it to still be winter but he hasn't done that and he doesn't do that at all in fact he has made preparations for her arrival he welcomes her back with enthusiasm and the onlookers of the scene celebrate the bride's return verse 13 return return O Shulamite return return that we may look upon you and so we have like a crowd onlookers the 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 royal party is looking on and they're rejoicing that she's coming. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? He has a rhetorical question. The whole book makes clear in multiple places why the king would want to look upon his beloved. He calls her the most beautiful among women. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 1. It's fitting for the king's subjects to want to see a bride's beauty, and especially when she's enjoying the king's presence. But take note of the word that he uses to describe his bride here. Shulamite. It's a strange word. Where'd that come from? That's a new one. Shulamite is the feminine version of Solomon's name. The author is using his own name to give a name, a description to the bride. Can you think of another story in Scripture where a bridegroom names his bride in poetry? In the garden, we have poetry given. And there's a Hebrew word for man is ish, which is the basis for the Hebrew word for woman, ishah. 
And so we have God creates Adam. He takes from Adam and creates Eve. And Adam responds with poetry. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. It's the same thing that's happening here. The woman is made and given to the man to be a helpmate, and her role, her identity is tied to the husband. She is who she is because she is connected to who he is. This is important. Similarly, here in Song of Solomon, the bride is deriving her name, her identity, her status from her bridegroom. And the same is true of the nation of Israel. The bride of Yahweh in the Old Covenant. Indeed, the very name Israel is derived from the patriarch's connection to Yahweh in Genesis 32. The covenant between Yahweh and Israel is pictured as a marriage where Israel's identity is tied to who her king is. She is holy because her husband is holy. And how much more of a glorious picture do we see in light of the fullness of the New Testament where the bride of Christ is brought in and given a new name, a new identity, a new role, a new station because of her union with Him. The name this bride is given is significant because it's union to the King and the same is true in the New Covenant. We have in Christ a bridegroom who does not hold a grudge He doesn't sit in the coldness of winter. He anticipates our return back to Him. He embraces us with open arms, even when we have rejected communion with Him. And He reminds us of His love by recalling to us the truth of what He said to us in the past. And like the Shulamite, who derives her loveliness by her connection to her King Solomon, we too are made lovely because we are connected to the true and greater Solomon who has come. Christ's perfection, His name, that is what makes us lovely. No matter how unlovely we've made ourselves, no matter what sin we've defiled ourselves with, no matter how cold we have been towards our bridegroom, simply by belief, By faith in Christ, the final bridegroom, we can experience reunion, reconciliation. We can be remade and made lovely. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of Scripture. Whatever you've done, whatever sin you've committed, however many times you've rejected Him, you've run from Him, you can be reconciled to Him and given a new name, a holy name, a spotless name. You can be part of Christ's bride and you can commune with Him now and for eternity. So trust in that Jesus and you can experience what the bride in this passage has tasted. And this picture of what she experiences in this passage is also pictured for us in the Lord's table. He's reconciled to us. He warmly invites us, despite the fact that we don't deserve any communion. He's saying in this meal, a hostility has ended. The enmity is over. Winter is gone and spring has sprung. That's what the table says. Fruitfulness can come now. So if you're like the saints described in Acts chapter 2, devoted to the teaching of God's Word and to the fellowship of the saints, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to join us at the table. 
If you're not trusting in Christ and united to a biblical church, then Scripture forbids you to join us. But after we pray, we'll come down the center aisle and receive the elements and we'll return to our seats down the sides and we'll take the meal all together at the end. And we'll also have somebody walking around with the tray if you're unable to make it up front. Let me pray and then our servants will come. Father, we thank you for the good news that we have a bridegroom who's not resentful. He doesn't hold a grudge to his bride. In fact, he warms our hearts when they are cold. He reminds us of his love and what he's done for us and the status that we have as his bride because he is holy and in him we have been made holy. Encourage us and strengthen us by the elements at the table we ask. In Christ's name, amen.